afternoon, everybody. Uh, as Ron said, Annabelle, my partner, and I um, have worked on issues around uh, the reporting conflict for 15 years. And um, we have been exploring and developing and implementing and interrogating something called peace journalism. And, and it's peace journalism that I'll be speaking mostly about today. And um, what I'll be doing is, is uh, telling you about the research we've been undertaking over the last few years which has been about seeing how peace journalism can apply to various situations of conflict and seeing what happens when uh, audiences are presented with peace journalism stories about conflict. Let me make a couple of, of brief observations about the terminology I'm using. Firstly, um, I've met one or two of you, including your colleague Yusuf from Palestine, and um, the word peace may uh, feel to you, um, perhaps slightly differently to many, and um, I, I would invite you to, to pick up that topic in more detail later if you wish, but suffice it to say at the moment that the, the working definition that we use within my centre is, is of peace with justice, peace with justice. That is to say, positive peace, uh, enabling people to fulfil their potential, rather than merely negative peace, which is uh, refraining from direct violence. So that's one uh, interesting point. Um, another of direct relevance in this research is that conflict, uh, we say, is not synonymous with war. Conflict is not synonymous with war. Indeed, war is a form of organised social violence, which is just one among very many possible responses to conflict. And conflict is often defined in, in peace and conflict studies as uh, a relationship uh, between two or more parties with incompatible goals. And that's it. That's it. So it can crop up, uh, it can be a factor, and it can present itself, as you may imagine, uh, across a whole range of different contexts. So peace journalism is not purely and simply about war reporting. Uh, that could come into it, certainly, and it would have things to say about war reporting, uh, but it's not uh, the be-all and end-all. Let me, first of all, then, um, say a few things about peace journalism, what it is, uh, where it comes from, and really its main... Um, Ancestors, its intellectual ancestor, if you like, is a famous essay that some of you may have come across uh, from 1965, which is as old as me, uh, called The Structure of Foreign News. The Structure of Foreign News. And this is by two authors, Johann Gautam and Marie Holm Baruga. Gautam went on to be the chief ideas giver of peace research over subsequent years. But this uh, was, was a very significant essay, and it's often referred to in communications research, uh, in particular about journalism. Now, in journalism studies of, of that time, journalism was beginning to be the focus of, of serious academic study at that time, and uh, a familiar image is, is the journalist as gatekeeper. Uh, that is to say, uh, the, the journalist's job is to report the facts. But of course, there are many more facts than can be fitted into the reports. So, as we all know, you have to have some means of, of admitting some and keeping others out. The Gautam-Ruger essay was, was significant, I think, in suggesting that that's not a process that takes place at random. Uh, there is a discernible uh, structure of assumptions at work about what should be allowed through the gate and, and what should be kept out. The essay, therefore, puts forward a number of, of, of conventions for predicting newsworthiness. And they may seem, seem rather obvious now. They may be rather obvious from, from your own work. Uh, one of them is, is threshold. Uh, of course, threshold is, is a variable um, uh, factor. Um, if, uh, let's sincerely hope not, but if a bomb went off in Oxford High Street, it would be a, a much bigger story than a bomb going off 
uh, in another part of the world to a newspaper in Oxford. So their threshold would, would be effective in that way. Uh, frequency, that's a very significant one. Uh, this is where um, it may shade onto the discussion that John was mentioning that you had with James. Uh, that is to say, an event is newsworthy if it has a beginning, middle, and end in the interval between editions or between deadlines. So if today's paper arrives in your hands, that it's likely that it will be telling you something which has very obviously changed since you had yesterday's paper in your hands. Okay? Now, in the example given in the essay, and this is where it becomes directly relevant to, to war reporting, a good example of an event that has that profile would be a soldier being shot and killed on a battlefield, because the shot, the soldier falling and dying, could all take place between deadlines. So it has very obviously happened. It can be pointed to as something that has happened, and therefore um, that's likely to be reported. But, as Gautam and Ruger point out, it could be that the war is taking place in response to unresolved conflict issues, which could be addressed in a different way. And they may be being addressed in different ways. Uh, there could be um, efforts underway to assist the development of the country concerned to try to alleviate some of the issues that led to the war in the first place. But because any success in that development project, any, any results from that development, must only accrue over a much longer time frame, <coughs> they never fit into the interval between editions or between deadlines. So they're always consigned and confined to the background. That's one of the, the chief arguments in it. Uh, another one is, is that bad news is more exciting than good news. Um, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise get divorced. Uh, someone gets shot. Uh, something's gone wrong. It's, it's always something to This, by the way, is in a cartoon from uh, Unique. It was the cartoonist from the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, according to these conventions, you see the most read article in Australian media is uh, nude mum stalks injured footy star. <laughs> uh, and the least read article is botanical gardens sold to developers. <laughs> now, be because of these conventions and their pervasive effect, Galton Ruger argued that uh, a picture builds up over time of conflict in the round, all kinds of conflict, which uh, is likely to instill in its readers and audiences, uh, the idea that what should happen in response to this conflict is a violent response. That is to say, it, it builds a potential constituency or receptiveness for violence. If you uh, never get to hear about um, the underlying issues which have led to the conflict and the violence in the first place, then it doesn't appear to make any sense to envisage ways to address or alleviate those issues. So the, the non-violent response uh, it is never something that becomes salient in this story. It, it's always the violent response that appears to be on the agenda. Whether we are in agreement or disagreement about whether to apply such a response or not, a US-led intervention in Syria uh, could be in that category. And, and, and therefore, that's why it was a concern, because as they say, um, one can hypothesize that people act on their image of reality and the media are a good candidate, as they argue, to be the number one image former uh, for lots of people. And therefore, if the image they form over time uh, adopts the pattern predicated on these conventions, then it could be that publics who rely on media for their information uh, become more likely to, to be receptive to suggestions for violent responses to conflict and less to non-violent. Okay? So, hence, the predominant form of news in Galton's view, deserves to be called war journalism, 
war journalism. Not merely because it's journalism about war, but because journalism about all sorts of conflicts can, without intending to, unwittingly help to pave the way to war. Okay? So if there's war journalism, then according to Galton, there has to be a remedial form, namely peace journalism. And this is me and him launching our book about peace journalism with one of my students, who is a reporter from the Philippines. Uh, for some years, she had uh, the job of uh, reporting on the uh, activities of the American forces in the southern Philippines. Quite an interesting task to try to approach from the point of view of peace journalism, as you can imagine. And, and Galton identified um, four uh, broadly defined characteristics of this predominant brand of reporting, merit the term war journalism. And that's in the right-hand one of those two columns, and this is in, in summary form. And, and the chief one is, is that it's war or violence orientated. That is to say, there's a danger that um, conflicts are reported as, as a series of big bangs, effectively. The violent events are the ones that grab the headlines, and the underlying processes are always in danger of being squeezed out. And moreover, um, it's often in the form of, of the two parties contesting the single goal of victory. Quite a number of people, uh, you, you may have read um, this from a chap called uh, John Campner. John Campner used to be a BBC political correspondent. And what John Campner says about BBC journalism, for example, is that uh, a lot of BBC journalism adopts the formula on the one hand, on the other hand, in the end, only time will tell. We could do a lot of, of he says, a lot of BBC journalism like that. And um, that is to, to model a conflict as being of two parties. So if there are two parties in this conflict, everything has to be on one side or the other side. And there is, uh, if you like, a dangerous logic possibly in that. Because you see, um, if, if uh, I am on uh, one side of a conflict and um, you are on the other side of the conflict, and um, we, are, we are like people in a, in a tug of war, okay? so we have to hold at either end of the rope. So if I, if I gain a metre, you have to lose a metre. Okay? So it's a zero-sum game. So with, with only two parties, uh, there is a possibility of everything being interpreted as a development which moves either one of them or the other closer to victory. And that can't happen without the other one moving closer to defeat. And if that logic then seeps in uh, to the actions and motivations of those parties to conflict, then um, they can come to feel that the only way to avoid being seen to lose is to try harder to win. In other words, that can, that can escalate a conflict. There will be many, many examples of that. One would be, for example, um, during the uh, NATO operation in Libya a couple of years ago, a couple of the, the newspapers here, um, the Daily Telegraph springs to mind, um, had columnists um, who would regularly write that uh, if, as a result of this, or at the end of this operation, uh, Colonel Gaddafi is still in power, you know, then David Cameron will have lost. Con Coughlin, for example, was one of these columnists. So imagine, you know, poor Mr. Cameron, you know, waking up in the morning in Downing Street, opening the Daily Telegraph, thinking, oh no, I've got to push on and make sure we get Colonel Gaddafi, or the Daily Telegraph will tell people I've lost. You know? And it's, it's, you know, I trivialise, but you can understand the, the, um, the issue. So, just quickly, um, a couple of images that might help to kind of uh, fix these, some of these distinctions in your mind. The, the other, the other um, characteristics that uh, Galton maintained were, were key uh, to this kind of dominant form of war journalism were that it was propaganda orientated, elite orientated, and victory orientated. Uh, in other words, everything is, is uh, predicated on assessing whether one side or the other is, is going to win and whether they're going to lose. And that was um, uh, often true in reporting, I'd suggest, 
of uh, the build-up um, to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And this uh, newsweek cover on the left-hand side is um, uh, from September 2002. Uh, and um, as you can see, it's, it framed the conflict, uh, quite literally, um, as that zero-sum game between two parties. Uh, that one of these, these guys will win and the other will lose. Okay, that's the other way to put the same pressure, who will lose. Whereas here, on the other side, the, uh, the uh, inimitable style of the British tabloids, I'm sure you've been enjoying that while you've been in this country, um, the Daily Mirror saw an opportunity, I think, to uh, present itself as an anti-war popular newspaper at that time. And in that inimitable style, it, it, it did, uh, I suppose it represents the very beginnings of an incipient divergence between these two forms, because what it's doing is suggesting that it's not perhaps quite as simple as to present this as, as two sides struggling for the single goal of victory. It, it begins to suggest that there may be some reasons that we may want to think about that, that why each side may want to win. Okay, so, so what is it actually for, what is it actually about? You can see they've, they've made a play out of the oil company names. I shall not exonerate Saddam Hussein from blame. I will mobilize our troops and jets to Kuwait and the Persian Gulf. I will BP repaired for total war. My message is, I'm a cold, need to kick your ass, said him. Reminds us of the, the comedic potential we lost when Mr. Bush left the intelligence quotient up. Comedy quotient down. So, so this again, uh, going back to this time, you, you may remember, and again, it's a pattern um, which is repeated over and over. That if you are in a conflict, and, and this this media logic, this news logic of these conventions begins to enter your calculations, then if you decide, therefore, that you have to ratchet up your efforts for victory, you may also need find that you need to justify that by painting the one on the other side not merely as the enemy, but also the evil one, the one who is beyond the pain, the one who does not deserve any, any reasonable treatment, the one who cannot be talked to or negotiated with, uh, and therefore uh, there is a kind of dyadic good versus evil shape uh, to a lot of reporting conflict in, in a lot of places. And uh, you may feel that um, a distinctive world picture can sometimes emerge, which is the world divided into good and evil, there, you see. This cartoon from the independent. Uh, and the same places can be can have the, the opposite labels attached to them over time. Talking of, of Colonel Gaddafi, as we just were, you know, he, he had a dizzying ride from being, uh, you know, get me behind me, Satan, to uh, come in, I'll chat, have a cup of tea, and then suddenly back out in the cold again, you see. Uh, so he, he might be um, evil, formerly good, formerly evil. Uh, so that, that would be uh, a very brief um, sketch of um, uh, the kind of uh, predominant uh, reporting of conflicts of all kinds, which Galton and Ruger's essay suggests emerges out of the constant application of these conventions, uh, or these tuning factors, as they called them, uh, to indicate something which is newsworthy and something that isn't newsworthy. Okay? And this, this is what requires the um, remedial application of, of peace journalism. <coughs> now, peace journalism began life as a kind of a campaigning proposition, uh, and people um, in various uh, parts of the world wanted to campaign for peace journalism, they wanted to call for peace journalism, they wanted to practice peace journalism, even in lots of countries, like uh, the Philippines, for example, is a country where uh, peace journalism has attained a lot of traction, uh, in particular with regard to the conflict issues in the southern Philippines. So a lot of people, a lot of journalists um, are, are interested in it. And um, about 10 years ago, 
Annabelle and I went to uh, Magdalen College down the road here uh, to an academic conference uh, and started to really discuss these ideas with researchers. And the researchers asked us, uh, so has peace journalism ever been operationalised? That's the kind of thing that don't say, you see. Uh, and, and we said, oh, well, I think so, yes, we, we were operationalising it when we did that story the other day. No. Uh, but it turned out that's not what they meant. What they meant was, has it been used to um, carry out research? Has it been used to analyse media content, for example? Okay? The answer at that stage was, was not really, but uh, since then a lot of analysis of, of media content has been done using peace journalism. And peace journalism is recognised with these, uh, as doing these things, basically. Uh, this is from a survey of published research in the peace journalism field. That is to say, looking at all these studies that have been published and trying to, to distill a number of general principles. What do researchers mean when they write about peace journalism, when they are analysing media content, when they're trying to find out how much peace journalism there is, what is the peace journalism they're, they're talking about? And so this um, emerges as, as a set of five headings, really, that, generally speaking, peace journalism is recognised as that which explores backgrounds and contexts of conflict formation. Now what that means is, is that uh, that's distinguished from the events taking place in the conflict arena. Okay, so the conflict arena might be, for example, the battle for Misrata, but the conflict formation would be a much broader perspective of time and space, uh, which would contain lots of, of backgrounds and contexts. Is some effort being made to take those from the background and bring them somehow into the foreground. That's, that's one. Does it give the views of all rival parties? Now, you know, in one piece of reporting, that would be a big job, because obviously there are lots of rival parties. But really speaking, the practical import of that is, is the reporting merely giving the views of one leader from each of two sides, or is it going further than that and bringing us the views and perspectives and versions of events preoccupying people at different levels. Okay? Does it present to us uh, creative ideas for conflict resolution, peacemaking and peacekeeping? Not that uh, the journalist is expected to switch roles and advocate such things, but do, is, is, the, is the journalism in question reporting on people who are advocating for and practicing such things? Okay? As, as newsmakers, as news sources. Is it exposing lies, cover-up attempts and profits on all sides? Peace journalism has had some difficulty, I think, in figuring out where it stands on the role of the journalist and how the role of the journalist can be conceptualised uh, with reference to facts and factual reporting, the epistemology of journalism, and that's a whole, a whole debate. What we could say is that um, peace journalism is often the one that tries to switch on the critical faculty of the reader or, or the viewer, okay, to try to defamiliarise something which we're very used to hearing uh, and, and get us to think through that again. Uh, and does it pay attention to peace stories and post-war developments? So, so this is, if you like, a summary of, of the peace journalism field. And, and crucially, this is about, uh, or, or the, these headings emerge from studies in what is often called the manifest content of news, the manifest content of news. By manifest content, we mean the bit that everybody can share, okay? Uh, if, if, I, if I had a newspaper and I held up the page, 
The bit on the page is the manifest content. That is to distinguish it from the implicit content. And the implicit content of that story only takes shape when you read it. Okay, so when I read, when I read uh, the new story, I have the manifest content in front of me, and the meanings I make out of it are the implicit content of my reading of it. Okay? But that is not necessarily going to be the same for everyone. Um, and that's really what um, Annabelle and I have been trying to investigate, because what that means is that uh, it is more difficult than it might first appear to, to be able to tell whether peace journalism actually makes any difference compared with war journalism. Do people respond to it with different means? Do they respond in different ways? In these studies, by the way, these, these studies in content analysis, people find invariably that there is some peace journalism. Whatever, however they, they divide up the model, however they, they derive their criteria, they find a mixed picture. There is some peace journalism. So it's always tempted me to wonder how there could be more peace journalism. But first, um, I think it would be reasonable to, to uh, wonder whether it actually makes any difference to present people with peace journalism compared with war journalism. Okay? And that's what we've been trying to do. So we launched this study called uh, A Global Standard for Reporting Conflict, and we did that in four countries, uh, Australia, the Philippines, South Africa, and Mexico. What we did first was um, we, we needed to know, okay, we, we have these broad headings, you know, do they make sense? They only make sense in the context of a given story if you do more thinking about the issues in the story, more thinking about where the jumping off points really are, okay? What are the real distinctions in the presentation of this story? And so we had to identify how the distinctions operated in individual stories in each of these four countries by something called critical discourse analysis, or CDA, okay? Then what we did was, was we had a, an exercise in content analysis to try to uh, indicate how much peace journalism on those distinctions is underway at the moment. And then what we did was we, we took a number of stories from each of those countries, five or six in each case, and we said we, we partnered with a television news operation, partnered with a television news station, and we said, okay, here are your versions of these stories. These have all been broadcast in the last few weeks. So, you know, we, we have these five stories. What we then did was we took our camera, see us there with our camera, and we went to gather more material. And we gathered pictures and interviews and sequences, and, and we used those to recut those stories and produce new versions of them. And they were all um, to about the same length and in the same style. And what we did was we got reporters from those television stations to voice up the same story, only in this new version. So we had a bulletin of peace journalism stories and a bulletin of war journalism stories. And then in order to find out whether it would make any difference, we played those bulletins to different audiences and we used a whole uh, battery of measures to try to gauge people's responses. Um, so people uh, took part in focus groups, um, they uh, wrote down responses on questionnaires about how they were feeling when they watched, uh, what, th what thoughts came into their minds, um, and um, it says there we, we themed the narrative data using Entman's framing paradigm. And this is uh, referring to an essay published 20 years ago by an American communications scholar called Robert Entman. And the crucial thing, the crucial thing about his version of framing is that framing, he says, connects important things about a particular story, especially the problem diagnosis with the treatment recommendation. 
And this is absolutely crucial to the distinction between war journalism and peace journalism. Because the way the problem is presented to you influences how you think it can be treated. Uh, and that's the key question, really, in trying to gauge the influence of peace journalism. If it's going to, in the familiar phrase, give peace a chance, peace needs to be given a chance because it, it doesn't with, with the operation of these conventions, if peace is going to be given a chance, if those issues are going to be effectively opened back up again, then there has to be a link uh, between an initiative like peace journalism to present the problem in a different way and on the other hand people's conclusions about what the appropriate treatment would be. Okay? So, what I'm going to do is, is play you an example. Okay? It's an example um, from the Australian branch of the study. And uh, one of the stories or storylines very familiar uh, from the Australian news agenda uh, is about how Australia should respond to asylum claims. Asylum claims. It's a very uh, fraught issue in Australian politics, even more than it is in, in lots of other countries like the UK, for example. Uh, and um, this is from uh, September 2010, uh, about three years ago. And um, this is about a particular development in the story about how Australia should respond to asylum claims. We're going to first show the original version, the war journalism version. You, 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 by the way, therefore, you are not in the same position as participants in the study. Participants in the study uh, were not told this is the war journalism version. They were not told that there is more than one version. As far as they were concerned, this was the news. Uh, and that's quite significant, okay, because one of the propositions, as you know, of television news in particular, it is, is this is the way it is. It's not one way it could be, this is the way it is. Okay? Um, so that was a bit different. So let's try and see if we can, if we can show this. So that's, that's one version. Just let's have a little look at how, how people uh, responded. What, what do you think, think of that, everybody? About anybody? The voice of the asylum seeker is missing, yeah, that, that's, one, uh, that's one factor, certainly, yeah. A very uh, interesting uh, writer, um, whom you may have read, called uh, James Carey, once said, uh, the question why is the dark continent of American journalism. Possibly similar to Australian journalism, but this is in guide, shall we say. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, the why is, is not in there. Also, did you notice the, the language? Um, I don't know whether you necessarily pick it up if, if English is not your first language. Yeah, both people, yeah, single men, yeah. I mean, I, I was doing um, some training in London earlier this year um, with a group of people who were then going to give training to journalists in Syria. Uh, and one of the trainees was from Syria. And he finished watching this and he said, huh, I'm a single male asylum seeker. He said, <laughs> so yeah, there, there are those characteristics of it. Also the classic inundation metaphors. There are floods of these people coming. The system is overwhelmed and they've been coming in waves and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, they're, they're all, I suppose, um, well-worn uh, distinctions in the representation of this story in Australian media, um, which conform to some extent uh, to these, these criteria that we were, that we were saying earlier. Um, let's, well, let, before I give it away, let's, let's, let's see the other version. Let's see the other version. Same, same story, just reported slightly differently, as you will see. What about that one? Slightly different. I mean, Australia, like many countries, yeah, Australia has had many divisions within itself, certainly. And there is an Australian audience um, who regularly receives the kind of reporting we saw in the first version. But as our colleague has implied, as Katrina, as Katrina has suggested, you know, there, there are multiple Australian audiences. You know, Australia has, has a long tradition of uh, uh, legislating 
uh, to keep outsiders out, but it has an equally long tradition of welcoming them in. Has an equally long tradition of, of um, successfully integrating immigrant communities. You know, Sydney is a very diverse city and, and quite a, a successful one in that sense. Okay, so yes. So yeah, those were the two the two versions of that particular story, and uh, some a summary really, I suppose, of, of audience responses. That the viewers of, of the standard version, the first version, the war journalism version, recorded in their answers to questionnaires and so forth that they became more hopeless. More, more of a feeling of hopelessness after watching it. They had higher increases in astonishment, revulsion, contempt, distaste, anger, disdain, scorn, and downheartedness about it, uh, compared with the viewers of the peace version. And indeed, they were angry and um, revulsed about different things. Okay, uh, I think you'll agree that. Um, a strong version of the problem definition in the first version is these pesky boat people. And therefore the treatment recommendation would be likely to take the form of doing something to them. Whereas in the second one, there is a rather more open uh, problem diagnosis, certainly including the inefficiencies of the system, certainly including the reason why that poor man feels that if he went back home, he would have his throat cut, which you can hear, he gets a chance to speak in the second version, and therefore uh, the treatment recommendation must include addressing those issues as well. And the two different grabs from the opinion poster, I think, reflect the point I'm making in, in response to Victor's comments. Stephen. Sorry, Stefan's comments, very well. Uh, which is that on the one hand, um, you know, Australians would like people who arrive by boat to go back through the UN system instead, uh, but on the other hand, um, they're quite, uh, the majority are quite happy to, to welcome them as immigrants in Australian society. And um, what uh, Mr Jafari says, that the chap who's interviewed in the black shirts in the streets, um, suggests that their view that people should be told to go back and apply through the UN is not always realistic. For, for him, a Hazara from Afghanistan, to attempt to reach a UN office in Afghanistan would have been very dangerous indeed. Uh, and that, that's often not realistic. So that was, uh, that's some, some of the salient points, I think, in, in the distinctions uh, in the responses to these stories. So we, we could be fairly confident, therefore, um, that peace journalism uh, was making a difference. And these are the kind of results that were replicated in lots of stories across uh, the different countries, that viewers of peace journalism were more likely to respond uh, by empathising with people whom they met in the stories and with a hopeful uh, orientation that, that somehow these problems could be resolved. People who watched the war journalism were more likely to respond with fear and anger uh, and, and be very worried about the problems but not necessarily see how they could be effectively addressed. And, and therefore, uh, you know, we, we could be fairly confident that the, the two forms were, were being received differently. Uh, and secondly, uh, in, in general, viewers of peace journalism versions uh, were more likely to diagnose the problems in systemic or structural terms. That is to say, not by making out that it's one person's fault or the fault of one group of people, okay? Whereas the war journalism uh, viewers did prove receptive to that same idea. Uh, and therefore, when people watched peace journalism, they tended to talk about treatment recommendations that were capable of addressing that problem across that broad definition. Uh, so, so lots of things would have to be done, starting with improving the efficiency of the system for handling people's claims, okay?
and, and most people do have well-founded claims. Whereas uh, the treatment recommendations favoured by people who watch board journalism tended towards the punitive. They, they tended towards the reactive, okay, the security discourse, the security response, therefore bearing out uh, this, this suggestion we made of, of the distinction between the war journalism and the peace journalism. Now, we, we reached that point, therefore, where, where we felt we had answered um, you know, one of the key questions about peace journalism. It's not only different in the mind of the journalist who does it, it also makes a difference to the meanings that audiences make out of it. And so we, we proceed um, fortified by that. So the next research agenda, which is how peace journalism can actually be carried out in 